Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me Dr. Aaron Thomas Daly to tell us all about his new book that's just come out from Oxford University Press in 2023. And I'm probably going to start off mispronouncing the title, but the good thing is we've got the expert with us to tell us all about the book Radigand, The Trial and Triumphs of a Merovingian Queen, um, which helps us understand this honestly fascinating figure um, who was queen, but also way more than that. So Aaron, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to take us through this fascinating woman in history. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm very excited to be here and I can confirm the pronunciation was perfect. So we're off to a good start. <laughs> we are brilliant. Well, in order to keep us on that good start, um, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Oh, yes, I'm happy to. So um, I suppose just to start, my title is Associate Professor of Late Antique and Early Medieval History, um, and I'm based at the University of Leicester. And um, the book project is something that kind of traces back a long time. Uh, It goes back to when I was first doing my PhD research and looking at some of the women mentioned in the works of Gregory of Tours. And there was one woman in particular who stood out. That was Radigand. I thought her story was was absolutely fascinating. Um, a princess, a prisoner, a queen, a deaconess, a nun. You know, it has everything. Um, and for my first book, I wasn't able to talk to her, talk about her as much as I would like. Um, she really sort of deserves pride of place in a in a dedicated biography. So I always knew when I had the chance, I was going to try and try and do justice to her life, and hopefully, in a book that's that's accessible, um, affordable, and is something that people can enjoy, um, not only scholars and experts and, and people with uh, technical and um, scholarly interest in her life for reasons of their particular academic discipline, but hopefully even more widely students, people interested in the early Middle Ages. I thought she's a perfect figure for that. No, and I think that will become clear as we discuss um, her life, kind of just how many ways in there are for people to be interested in the history. So um, given, obviously, that we're talking mainly about her, uh, I think it makes sense probably to start from the beginning and move chronologically. So it's a pretty dramatic start, to be honest. Um, You talk about how Radigan became, quote, part of the spoils and fell from princess to plunder. Can you take us through this very dramatic beginning? Oh, I'd love to. And, um, you know, it's it it's a perfect example of why her life is, at the on the one hand, very different from us, and on the other hand, very relatable to us, and how her story is ultimately one of triumph over trauma. So we're going to start with some of the, the, the bad stuff, because she has a very hard time at first in life. Um, not to give away the ending of the story, but she does succeed. Um, and end up overcoming all of this. So let's let's keep that in mind as I go through some of the more difficult things that she started out with in life. But the most sort of first moment in, of her life that we really glimpse with any detail is her becoming a captive after a war. She was born into a royal dynasty. She was a princess. She was presumably destined to be something great in her kingdom of Thuringia. And right when we see her at a young age her kingdom is being defeated and being destroyed at the hands of the Franks, led by a particularly ruthless general and king, Clothar. Um, and in fact, this will end up being Radigan's future husband as well. So she's off to a bad start. She becomes captive. Most of her family is is killed or slaughtered. Some of her 
relatives are able to escape. In particular, she has one close relative who survives. That's her brother. We'll come back to that. But for the most part, her kingdom's destroyed. Her family's killed. She's a captive in war. And she's taken now. She's possessed by the Franks. And she becomes an object of dispute between Clothar and his half-brother Thuderic, who actually, according to at least one source, cast lots to decide who possesses her amongst all the spoils. So you can imagine the the gold that they've possessed and the other kinds of wealth they've achieved. And there's then there's Radagon being divided up amongst the other objects um, between these two invading and, and intimidating figures. That's how she falls from princess to plunder. And that's how we start the story of her life. That's where she starts from. Mm. As you said, um, it does get better. <laughs> we will get into that. Um, but obviously, I want to mention or pick up on the point you just raised, right, which is that uh, Clothar ends up being her husband. So given this start um, as the spoils of war, to what extent do we see Radigant having any agency in her wedding and marriage? Yes, I mean, I, I will talk about agency. I should probably say, first of all, just how difficult it would have been for her to have any agency in that situation. You can only imagine she's a captive in war. She has no real family to turn to. She has no independence. Um, she's actually taken to a villa where she's raised, a royal villa where Clothar her, has people there to, to look after her and also to watch her. It's not the most friendly of environment. Um, and she's raised in captivity. And you think, what kind of agency can someone have in this situation? I mean, they're, they're powerless. And that's one of the interesting things about her life is actually, again and again, she manages to have, uh, although she has such limited room to maneuver, she manages to achieve things within those constraints. And once you set out the constraints, you can then be impressed by just what she's able to achieve. Now, she was really destined to marry Clothar if he opted for that course. And in some ways, she's being raised to be a potential wife. Um, and she does come from a royal background, even if she's being raised in captivity. And the wedding is something that is you know, on the horizon. What can she do about that? Well, it's impossible really for her to avoid that if Clothar opts for it. But what she can do is she can try and achieve a certain kind of status as his official wife. So these kings like Clothar, he was no different from other Merovingian kings. They had um, oftentimes more than one wife over the course of their life. And then also simultaneously, they would have other women in their life, perhaps from different backgrounds, um, who they would have sons from and potentially maybe one day choose to make those sons their heirs if one of their formal marriages didn't end up being productive and producing an heir that way. So Radigan's in a very difficult situation because she's going to be married to someone and she knows that it's going to be a, a situation where her status is never secure. So what can she do? What agency does she have? Well, we have this remarkable account in one of her two biographers, and I'll talk more about them soon, where she actually runs away from the wedding day. So the wedding is planned, and it's planned in another villa, um, royal estate, very nice place, but very secluded, very private, and a place where if you're married there, it won't really be a public event. 
And what we see is we see Radigund escaping from that, not escaping from the marriage itself, but she actually escapes and she runs back to where she had been raised in captivity. And then the next thing we see, she's being married in a city, in the city of Soissons, which was a kind of capital for Clothar. And it has all of the pageantry that you would expect from a royal wedding. And most importantly for Radigund, it has recognition. People see her, they know she's the queen, and it gives her, a, a, for the first time, a bit of status and security in the kingdom. And I think we can, we can say that's the result of her agency. Even if the details are, are hard to see, uh, even if the details are hard to see, we can say that that is the result of her agency, and she managed to achieve that, which is remarkable given the situation she, she found herself. Yeah, hugely remarkable. Um, thank you for taking us through that. If she's then, she manages to get kind of the, as you said, the recognition, the the pu- more public ceremony, and therefore not only as the wife of the king, but also obviously queen. What kind of queen was she? Yes, this is so interesting to work out because, the, so there are two biographies of her. I should talk about them now so that we get a picture of what, what our sources are presenting and what maybe Radigan actually was, which isn't exactly necessarily the same. So the two individuals who wrote a what we would call a biography of her life, a, a hagiography, so a kind of sacred biography, uh, Fortunatus and Baldinivia, they're both people who are writing from a, a different perspective. Fortunatus is, um, he adopts a monastic life and he becomes a bishop, he has a clerical perspective, and Baldinivia writing later is one of the nuns who came from the institution that Radigan will eventually found. So you have two sources that are both writing from a a deeply religious point of view, and they both want to see Radigan as someone who always kind of wanted to be um, living a religious life, living, let's say, as a nun, and that that colors their presentation of her. Whereas reading between the lines, you can see that Radigan, although yes, she was a pious individual, and that only increases in her life, she was also a queen and was uh, never ashamed of her queenly status or royal status. And she had been born a princess. So in a way, even though she'd lived in captivity, she is now embracing what she might have thought of as her true purpose. What kind of queen was she? So she, certainly it fit her very well, this role. And in some ways, you can say she is, broadly speaking, a normal queen in that she has a certain amount of wealth. She has a presence at court, but there's something different about her. You can see her, for example, sneaking away from dinner invitations with her husband um, or, or when there's a feast, sneaking off from the feast and this amount of public festivity um, to go and see if the poor are being fed and if they're being looked after outside. You can t- see there's a certain kind of discomfort here. And, and maybe we can say, She's a bit lonely, um, isolated, and I think we can say abused as well. There's one scene in the biography by Fortunatus where he presents a, a picture of her intimate life and how she leaves the bedroom in the middle of the night, leaves her husband's side, and goes to pray in the privy. And I feel like that image presents the kind of loneliness and isolated feeling that she had and the sense that she was in an abusive context, and she really just needed to find ways to escape that. So her life as a queen, what kind of queen is she? It's really this juxtaposition of being around opulence and wealth and really what she maybe thought she was supposed to be 
but also feeling like it wasn't right. There was something, there was something else, um, something where she didn't fit in. And the, the principal thing that she has to confront as a queen, and I think this is critical to understanding her life path, is that she never had a child as a queen. She wasn't able to produce an heir, and that was most certainly something that would have been expected from her. And remember, she has these other women around court, competition, let's say, who do have children and who want to see those children incorporated into the rule of the kingdom. And this is an increasing threat, and her value is is contingent upon her ability to do something that she's increasingly unable to do. So that sense of loneliness, isolation, and abuse, you know, it only grows through the process of her becoming queen. Which, as you are illustrating, isn't exactly a great situation as much as there is the sort of opulent, shiny side of things. Um, the reality looks rather different. So perhaps, well, in some ways, unsurprisingly, and I think we'll get into the more surprising bit perhaps um, a little bit later, she separates from the king, from this marriage. Can you take us through as a start how and why she did this? And then I think we'll probably get into a bit of kind of what was the reaction and repercussion of it? Yes, this is astounding that she is actually able to escape the situation. And it's another instance of her finding a way to have agency in a position where a lot of people just would not have been able to to achieve anything and would have really been trapped. She does manage to escape this marriage. Now, it, it's something that reaches a, reaches a pinnacle, really, when she suffers an, an ultimate tragedy. Okay, which is that she only really has one close relative that survives from her childhood, and that's her brother. He's a figure we really don't know very much about. He's barely mentioned in the sources. In fact, normally what you'll read is that we don't even know his name. And it's true that we're not sure about his name, although I do think there's some reason to believe we might have his name in the name Germanus. Might be Germanus. I might just call him Germanus now, but put that caveat there that we're not sure about that. And what happens is that Clothar has Germanus murdered in circumstances that we really don't understand, but have a political context of some kind. This had to be devastating for her, and in some ways had to be what gave her the impetus to risk trying to leave her husband, because it was an incredibly risky thing to do. It was a huge gamble. And she had to feel as if there really wasn't anything worth continuing for. It may be even that Clothar had kept Germanus around as a way of using Radigund and Germanus to um, influence and perhaps manipulate one another in the sense that by threatening one, he could make the other do what he wanted. It's hard to see who he was most interested in manipulating and how that evil kind of dynamic worked, but that seems to be what's happening until at some point either Germanus or Radigund or both outlive their usefulness. And we don't know if Radigund's brother lost his political usefulness at some point or if her inability to have children is something that Clothar finally lost patience with and he thought she's not as she's losing her value in my eyes. That's not clear in the sources, but something happens that causes him to murder her brother. And it's at that point she decides, I have to risk it. I have to try. I don't have a high chance of success, 
it might seem like a radical thing to do, but there's a small chance I, I can succeed at this. I'm going to try and end this marriage and have a life for myself. And what she does is she, she goes to a bishop, Medard, and she tells him, I want you to, I'm going to don the clothing of a nun, and I want you to consecrate me as a deaconess. Now, this was a, this was a shocking thing for her to ask from this bishop because she didn't have the consent of her husband. He didn't know about the plan. Um, and this is going to cause a problem for the marriage. Now, what she was asking wasn't really something standard in that certainly you wouldn't have a female initiated process where a marriage ends because the woman's going to become a deaconess. But there was a kind of ancient custom where if a married couple wanted to in the closeness of their marriage and both enter into minor clerical orders or live a ascetic life dedicated to God, they could do that and their marriage would be seen as having ended. The assumption was that would be led by the man. In this case, it's not. But the consequence was if she receives consecration as a deaconess, then she really can't be a wife anymore because she's now consecrated to God. So Medar, the bishop, doesn't want to have anything to do with this at first, and there are um, around noblemen who tell him, you can't do this, you can't fulfill this request, because their loyalties are, of course, to the king. But nonetheless, Radagund is able to convince him that he needs to, and her famous way of phrasing it, he needs to fear God more than man, and he has to show whose side he's on. And she convinces him. And he does indeed lay hands on her and consecrate her as a deaconess. And now she's put Clothar in a very difficult situation. And how he responds to this is very interesting. But it's worth just saying up front that she has now already achieved something, that she's managed to use influence and her position with bishops and particularly with Medard to achieve this consecration um, which it has a certain kind of creativity to it and unexpectedness to it. And it is the big gamble. This is the way she thinks she can leave her husband and now live a life um, in pious dedication to God. So as you said, that's obviously a huge gamble. And it's really quite surprising, um, at least I found reading it, that she manages it, right? For all the reasons you've just detailed. Um, so I suppose before we get into how the king reacts to this, Obviously, her leaving the marriage is quite radical and kind of being able to leave the marriage. How radical was it that she did this in order to found a convent? How radical was that piece of it? Okay, so there's, yeah, so there's two steps. So just to talk about the, the separation itself, um, and then we'll talk about the convent. So separating from a marriage at this point, we're kind of caught between two broad historical eras. So if you go way back in time, in the days of the Roman Empire, divorce wasn't that difficult to obtain, just to put it very broadly speaking. If you go very far into the future, into the kind of Carolingian era and beyond, it's increasingly difficult, almost impossible to obtain. We're in the middle. So really, divorce is something that's possible, but that is, is not straightforward. But what we have here is something different than just divorce. We have a female-initiated divorce where the husband is the king. 
And that's crucial to understanding just how, just how difficult this would have been, because it's not a divorce where both people agree or where the, the man wants to have this happen. And because of gender and power structures, that's more achievable for him. This is initiated by the wife and against the king who really is, is the law and can make these determinations himself. So to be able to actually even start this process, you can see what she's up against. Now, to then go and ultimately found a convent. And the first thing she does, I should say, after she's successful um, at leaving Kalovar is she goes to another villa, her own, um, and she kind of turns it into a, a sort of monastic context. And it's like a bit of a proto-monastery before she finally founds the one that we all know her for uh, the, the convent of Holy Cross, which is in Poitiers. So there's a bit of a two-step process, but that's because founding a monastic institution takes time and needs support. Um, so that part itself is also quite a bold and radical thing to do. And again, that's, this is where we have to understand the era that we're in, because we come to think, we, we think of, um, monasticism as something that's very well established. It's a hallmark of the medieval period including female monasticism and convents, this kind of institutional structure where groups of people come together with a common set of rules that they follow in a particular place and they live out this life. This is actually an early period when that was really just getting going, especially for women. There was It, it started a little earlier for male religious institutions, but previously people did this as an individual. They wanted to live a life of asceticism, self-denial, and dedication to God. And they would go into the wilderness, um, some remote location, and live on their own as a hermit. And they were just starting to found institutions that actually had a common rule and that had a source of income and could it continue to exist in, in perpetuity. That started for male institutions, but for female institutions, Radigan's one of the first. Um, I can't say that she was the initiator of this, but certainly north of the, the sort of area within the Mediterranean remit, she's a very early adopter of this. And I would say she's a pioneer in the development of um, female monastic institutional life. Uh, especially in, in kind of central and northern Gaul in that area. She is very innovative. So that's that's also part of the story, is that in order to create a life for herself after her separation from Glothar, she almost has to not quite invent, but really pioneer a form of life uh, that she can she can then prosper and flourish within. So... That, in a lot of ways, I think, compounds everything we've been talking about so far, right? It's radical and difficult to leave a marriage at this time, and it's radical and difficult to found a convent. And of course, she does both, um, and roughly at kind of, you know, the same time, one and then the other. So you mentioned in your previous answer um, that obviously the founding of the convent not only requires sort of innovation in terms of the idea of it, but also obviously needs a bunch of money. Um, it's not the cheapest thing to do. This, in the context of her kind of publicly leaving the king, seems like a pretty big barrier. So I think it would be a good time now to go into how the king responded to her leaving him and then wanting to establish a monastery. Yes, this is this is the real um, crux of the matter, is in order to be able to 
found a monastic institution, she will need support. And in fact, she will need royal support. She will need Clothar's support. Now, how do you go from surprisingly ending a marriage um, to then getting the support of your now former husband for your monastic project? That's the most uphill, difficult to understand part of the entire process. And this is what I think happens. I think because Radiglin acted so quickly, she kind of caught Clothar by surprise. She's suddenly left him consecrated as a deaconess and no longer able to fulfill her role as wife. So she presents him with a dilemma immediately. And the dilemma is, does he publicly reject what she's done? And then, of course, he can capture her, he can punish her, he can prevent this from happening, he can also go after the bishop who consecrated her, he is the king. But he will look weak, he will look he will have to admit that this all happened against his will. The other option, the other possibility, is that even though this must be enraging because this was done behind his back, he can act as if this was his idea all along. And if he does act as if it's his idea all along, then he can be seen as a king who is supporting a pious, holy woman who he is connected to, and all of the achievements that she is able to attain as a holy woman actually reflect well on him. And by supporting her monastic project, he is creating holiness within his kingdom, and he is, he is further sanctifying the realm by being the financial and, and political support for a project of his former wife that is a, a project of holiness. So she presents him with these two options, and she knew his character at this point, and she must have known that he would, or at least she was gambling, that he would opt to support the project. And in the end, that is what happens. Um, now, there are hints in one of the biographies that, well, it's certainly that Radigan feared that Clothar might change his mind and try and take her back. Um, how seriously we take these stories is a, is a question because of the perspective of the text. But I think it is something that Radigan would have feared because she didn't know if this would work and she, she couldn't count on his support. It was a gamble. Um, but in the end, it was successful. And he does actually opt to save face, look like he's supporting this pious project and to give her land and financial resources so that she can create a convent in Poitiers where she can live. And it's actually a very well endowed institution. Of course, the, the, the price she has to pay for that is she knows that every, that however large her reputation grows, it's reflecting on Clothar. There's nothing she can do about that. But that was the trick that allowed her to receive this, this support. And the reason why she was able to do this also is because she had built up goodwill amongst the clerical establishment. And that was also surely part of Clothar's calculation when he made his decision to support what she was doing, is that she had clerics and bishops behind her. And this is because she had been such a, such a supporter of the church, and she donated to so many uh, monastic figures and ecclesiastical figures while she was queen. And she clearly was doing this not only because of her own personal beliefs, but also because she needed a support base from somewhere and not having a family to support her or other natural allies, she found support 
she found that she could achieve support by cultivating a good reputation with the church. So that that would have helped her. So I think her she did, in a sense, have a strategy and it made sense. But it was all based on Clothar's reaction. And that was really just down to his own personality and what he chose to do in that moment. And thankfully for her, he opted to present himself as this patron of her institution. And of course, he had other uh, women at his side. He had children from them. He could sort through the problems and consequences of this in various ways. He didn't need her. And he had opted to murder her brother. He must have thought she was dispensable as well when he made that decision. So you can see how she realized, well, if I'm going to be dispensable, this might actually work. And and that's what she tried to do. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it certainly, I think, also shows um, her political ability, right? Her ability to kind of read the situation and go, okay, well, I've got this alliance and here are my options. And um, how do I kind of make what I want to happen happen? Obviously, within constraints, um, but I think what you're discussing kind of very much shows, you know, she's thinking, there's a strategy, there's a plan. Um, and not necessarily in a way that we would always associate kind of if the 100% of what she wants is uh, a religious life, obviously, there are kind of, you don't have to found a convent necessarily to do that, right? There's there's kind of um, more planning, more leadership involved as well. And so I, I, I must admit, kind of given reading all of that in the book up to this point, I was not hugely surprised when you then went on to describe um, what her convent was actually like. And you made a point that um, in some ways her convent was more like a medieval court than what we might at least assume a convent was like or what other convents or religious houses at the time might have been more focused on. Um, obviously, she comes from having that experience already and is clearly capable of kind of getting things done, creating things that she wants. So can you take us through sort of how her convent compared to other religious houses, how it compared to medieval courts? This was one of the exciting things about doing the research was because you have these sources that present her as a kind of straightforward monastic founder. And there are things you expect to read in hagiographic texts. They follow conventions and there's a certain kind of mold of what you would expect a religious founder to, to fit within. But if you read between the lines and you look at some of the other sources that are available, you can actually see her personality coming through and that distinction between what the sources are trying to make her be and maybe what she really was, which was a more complex figure. She never stops being a queen. And I mean, in her, the way she, in her mannerisms, in her disposition, as you say, she was very politically savvy and she doesn't stop maintaining these political connections. Um, She's always making sure that she's able to maintain relationships with important people in the kingdom. And she does this through her convent, which starts to look actually a lot like the other courts, the royal courts throughout the realm. And it makes sense really once you see it, because as I said, she's sort of pioneering this monastic life. And even the earlier uh, convents that existed, they weren't really founded by queens. So they were founded by noble women. But there's not really a model for her. How do you establish a convent being run by a queen? Well, the court was a model that she had in addition to the other models of how you live a monastic life and these kinds of things. And you can see in, in, in the, in the monastery that there are 
feast that she's putting on for invited guests. There's even a reference to a kind of uh, celebration of a coming of age ritual for a young boy. It was just where a kind of ritual first shaved that would have involved noblemen and their families. Now, of course, Radigan herself, she's not partaking in this food. She's not feasting alongside everyone. She's, she's maintaining her ascetic life of self-denial and a very limited diet. Yet nonetheless, she's supporting that in or near her institution. And you can, you can see some of the things that, that they were doing, even the, the list of things they were eating, chicken, beef, goose, seafood, butter, honey, cheese, cream, fruit, nuts. It just goes on and on. Some of the gifts she received, purple silk, gifts of gold. Uh, she herself sends clothes to the emperor in Constantinople. There are little hints in the text that she's sitting on a throne in, in her, in her, convent it's called a cathedra it's all it's the name of a chair the same chair that a that a bishop would sit on she has attendants there are slaves of the monastery not only those who would be working the various estates that the monastery owned but also within the monastery itself to, in order to make it operate as a kind of uh, factory and elite household she has a personal physician um, who's described through a, a greek title there's also Fortunatus there, who is her client, he is um, a, a poet, and he starts to look a bit like a court poet. Having a court poet around the monastery, obviously not in the secluded areas, not in her cell, but she's she's building this up in a way that looks like it's modeled after royal courts. And there's even a suggestion later, that in a later time, that she had possibly had a eunuch around the monastery now that's not certain but that evokes the sense of the imperial court in constantinople and also her actions she's sending letters to kings she's trying to stop conflict she's negotiating peace she's maintaining good relations with the sequence of kings that rule after the death of clothar so that her monastery can stay in her stay in a good position and avoid uh any kinds of uh difficulties that it might face and also, her monastery is full of noble women. There's about 200, apparently, uh, 200 women in the institution, which is a lot. That's a lot of people to surround yourself with who come from an, uh, an elite background. So this, we have to imagine that her convent wasn't simply a stereotypical, maybe in our mind, monastic institution from a later period. But there's something creative happening here. There's something different, and there's a sense in which she would have felt at home at what was functioning rather like a royal court, even if she herself is very much practicing self-denial and living the life of a holy person, uh, which we can talk about as well. I don't want to mistake any of that. She is living that life amidst all of these other things, but she is the holy queen. She's both. She's the holiness and the queenliness combined in this institution. Mm, no, that's a helpful way of thinking about it, um, kind of both at once. And in a similar way, um, that's kind of how I see uh, one of her biggest, I suppose, most famous achievements um, as head of the convent is acquiring fragments of the Holy Cross for the convent, right? On the one hand, that's both obviously really religious and also pretty sort of court-like, right? Acquiring very famous things through relationships with important people um, in order to kind of elevate your status. 
So can you take us through how she actually manages to do this and what the reactions are? Yes. So this was a, this was a huge triumph for her. And it shows just how successful she was at building this institution because she is able to, to acquire fragments that were believed to be shards of the cross that was used for the crucifixion, which was a tremendous relic in order to have, really was. And she received this gift from Constantinople, from the emperor and empress of Constantinople. So the gift is not only an incredibly high status item in terms of it being a relic, that it has the sacred power of the cross, the object of salvation, which, which was used during the moment in which humanity's sins were forgiven. It has all of that sacred power, but it's also coming from the East Roman emperor and empress. So it has this prestige of being this imperial gift. And her ability to acquire it was a combination of her pious pursuits and her political connections. She's able to acquire it because she builds a good relationship with one of her stepsons, Sigibert, who was king at the time. And he's very interested in expanding his realm and making it something that is comparable to the empire in the East. And he has this agenda to have a good relationship with the court in Constantinople. She's using all of that. That's clear that she's drawing upon that and playing it playing her role in that negotiation process. But she's also, for a very long time, she's been very, very interested in acquiring relics, and particularly relics from the Holy Land. And I, I won't go through each one that she acquires or the process that she does it, but in some ways, the acquiring the fragments of the cross is the culmination of a, of a long pursuit of getting more and more relics and also knowledge from the Holy Land. And you can see stories starting to spread um, that are stories that you would expect to find in, say, Jerusalem or in the Holy Land, particularly about the Assumption of Mary, which starts showing up now. And it shows up very famously in the writings of Gregory of Tours, who Radiga knew. I think it's also hinted at in the writings of Fortunatus. And there seems to be things that Radigan does in her life where she's almost aware of the story and living out the story in some ways. So she's acquiring relics, she's acquiring knowledge, you might say lore. And finally, she's able to present herself as a new Helena. Helena was believed to be the woman who had discovered the cross. She was the mother of the famous emperor Constantine. She went on a journey to the east in the early fourth century, and it was thought that she had discovered this cross. That was what was believed, and by acquiring a piece for the Merovingian realm, Radigan was comparing herself to this Roman empress. So all of these things come together in a moment of what should have been great triumph. The people return, they have the fragments of the cross, it's going to be installed in her monastery, she's going to be the new Helena, Sigibert's happy, there's this alliance between East and West, and what happens to her? I mean, you wouldn't believe it, but her local bishop, the Bishop of Poitiers, makes himself scarce so he doesn't have to be there when this relic shows up. And what does that mean? It means that it can't be installed in the monastery because you need a bishop to perform that ceremony. It's a shocking moment. I mean, she's spent her whole life dealing with people like Clothar and building links within the clerical establishment. And now, at this moment of triumph, her own bishop isn't interested and we have to try and think about 
why, what was happening there, because she does have good relations with other bishops. And we have to try and reconstruct that. And it seems that there were kind of three things at work. And this, I think, in a way, is the result also of her queenly side, because um, she she did expect her instructions and commands to be fulfilled. She did expect to be able to act in a way that was as the an elite, important person. And she did expect her local bishop to see himself as fulfilling her requests. And I think her local bishop, his name was Maroveus, he didn't like that dynamic in that relationship. Now, of course, the sources say that he was jealous of her, and maybe he was, or that he had character flaws, and perhaps he did. But what other historians have noticed, and this is where I was working on previous research, is that actually she's creating a big problem for Maroveus and Poitiers, because as the bishop, he's really supposed to be the principal religious authority in the city, and she's completely blown out away by having this sacred institution, which is now going to have a fragment of the cross in it. And Maroveus, his the relics he has access to and can use as a bishop and show off. I mean, they're, they're in another shrine, which is just outside the city, and they don't compare to the relics of the cross, and he's in a difficult position. And I also think, now then, this is finally my own personal opinion here as well, is that Radigan's using this story of Helena and her discovery of the cross and how this empress was able to find this, the wood of, the, of humanity's salvation and in that story, when Helena discovers the cross, there's a question about whether the cross was the cross that was used for the crucifixion of Christ or the crucifixion of the two people crucified next to him, because there were three crucifixions that day. And the local bishop of Jerusalem in the story is able to verify the authenticity of the wood through a miracle. So it may be, it may just be that Maroveus thought he deserved to be in this new story and that there should be some process where he could verify the gift of the relics of the cross, because it was, it was somewhat controversial. I mean, not everyone liked or trusted the Byzantine emperor, the, the East Roman emperor in Constantinople. Not everyone was maybe even prepared to believe that this tiny piece of wood had really come from the cross. And Maroveus could have, it, there was an opportunity for Radigund, if she had been a little more diplomatic about it, to allow Maroveus to participate in this in a way that was more meaningful than just, I'm telling you to take this and put it into my convent. So it may have been that he had this issue, but whatever it was, whatever combination of problems it was, he didn't do it. He didn't put it in the convent. And so it was, it, the, the, the relics of the cross had to go elsewhere for a while before Radigan was able to call in a favor from the king and demand that the bishop of nearby Tours brought the fragment of the cross and put it in her monastery, which he, which he of course, did in all due uh, submission to her as she fully expected. So she relied upon her royal status to see this affected. But you can see in that moment, not only her acquisition of the cross, but in the reaction to it, that you really do always have this combination of a royal woman and a holy woman at the same time. Absolutely. Um, to kind of get all those things done and manage them uh, very much shows that combination. But I'd love to um, kind of keep going or I suppose sort of come back to something you mentioned earlier, right? Because the last few points we've talked about have been about this combination of the queen and the head of the convent. Um, but you raised earlier that 
she, of course, really very much is living these religious principles, um, even as she's doing these other things. So if you take sort of her life and her work more sort of zooming out a little bit, what do you think are some of the more noticeable aspects about her religiosity and religious practice? Okay, this is this is an absolutely fascinating aspect of her character. So in some ways, she seems very, let's say, normal as an aesthetic. She consumes small amounts of food, a very limited diet, avoids meat, drinks water or watered down wine, but she doesn't have she she's limiting her consumption of food and water because she's not of the world. She's of the next world and man does not live on bread alone, but the word of God. She wears an uncomfortable uh, uh, attire called a hair shirt, which causes some physical discomfort and it creates a bit of suffering, which aligns someone with the suffering of Christ and also uh, is a penitential act. That's all very sort of what you would expect. But then there are some things she does that are extreme by anybody's standards and were extreme by people's standards at the time and were clearly an issue. I mean, the, the person who tells us about it is Fortunatus, and he tells us about it to almost interpret it in a way that will take away people's discomfort from it. It's not something he's boasting about. It's something he's uncomfortable about. And this is the extreme acts of torment that she places on her own body. And we have a few examples of this. She, she, this mostly happens during Lind. She puts iron bands on her body and they're so tight that they bleed and fester. And when she takes them off, she has these extreme wounds. She takes a basin and has it heated until it's extremely hot and then, and then embraces it on her chest and it leaves scars on her. Uh, she has a, a metal plate heated uh, and she has herself almost branded with it. The metal plate is in the shape of, we're told, the sign of Christ, which is presumably the cross. That uh, could be the Cairo symbol. These are ex- these are extreme measures, and you have to think why. What was inspiring her to do this? And some of it could have been a way of dealing uh, with the, the various kinds of traumas that she had gone through. Um, uh, it's hard to know exactly. You have to speculate there. There's also something very symbolic about it because the, for example, the metal plate that she's using, it's called a lamina. Um, in the source, and uh, Lamina was used to torture or brand slaves. So she is debasing herself and humbling herself and saying, although she is this queen and has this royal background, she's also prepared to humble herself to such a point where, in almost a Christ-like way, to go from a reigning god to a suffering human on the cross, she's also prepared to embrace that journey and that contradiction. Um, So there is something symbolic happening there. And this is where it gets very interesting because of what she actually does during Lent and how she presents herself to her community of nuns. So we know that during Lent, she would sometimes seal herself off within her monastic cell and she would be barricaded in there and she was not accessible. And some of the most serious tortures that she would do to herself was during this time within her walled off cell. And she would have very little food, even very little water. And she would almost die by the end of the Linton period. So what's happening here? Well, here's a suggestion. So her convent looks like it's almost modeled on 
the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in Jerusalem. It houses uh, the tomb, the empty tomb of Christ, and it also houses Golgotha, where the crucifixion happened. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was associated with Helena and was considered to have been something that she founded. And so now at Radigan's convent, you have an oratory, and the oratory has a fragment of the cross. It's kind of like Golgotha. And then you have her cell, and she's almost dying in there. And her cell is almost like the tomb. And what it looks like she's doing is she's almost presenting herself as Christ by burying herself in her cell. And then everyone worries about her during Lent. And then on the Easter vigil, now the celebration of the resurrection, they, re they remove the bricks that, her, that are sealing her in, and out she comes having survived this death-like experience on the day celebrating the resurrection. It's a Christ-like emergence from the tomb. I mean, the boldness of this to present herself in this way. And she she probably truly thinks that she is the bride of Christ. I mean, this is the normal sort of thinking of what it means to be a nun, is that you're in some kind of mystical union with Christ, but if you have this idea that Christ is this reigning king in heaven and Radagund is this queen who is now holy, there is this union almost between her and between Christ. And for her to present herself in this Christ-like way as coming out of the tomb, it's it's an aspect of her religiosity that shows why everything else would be so extreme as well, because she's not simply another religious ascetic person practicing self-denial but she is experiencing death and crucifixion so that she can be this holy queen for her community and for the realm and it's because of this that she acquires this reputation for being able to work miracles even resurrection like miracles hmm. that is definitely um really interesting and i can see why that would sort of be unsettling to some people and um, that's definitely kind of not necessarily what you would expect um but as with her sort of being queen and being so radical you know doing this in the first place coming up with the convent it's a fascinating piece kind of as you said right at the beginning right she's really unusual she's really intriguing um so thank you for sharing that aspect of her as well with us coming however to the end of her life if not quite the end of the interview can you talk us through how she died and what happened immediately after her death? Yes, of course. So I'm very happy to say that she died peacefully in a very normal way in her bed. She has this tragic life. So many things happen to her. You think, okay, will there be tragedy uh, in relation to her death? No, actually, that's going to come just after. So let's enjoy that moment where she has, a, according to Balanivia, a peaceful death. Her nuns are around her. And of course, there are nice stories that circulate. I'll just mention one, which is that there were workers who were on a mountain quarrying stone, and they report that they overheard these angels talking. Okay, And of course, because they're on a mountain, they're close to heaven, which is just in the sky. So they can kind of listen in and hear what the heavenly creatures are saying. And they're worried because their role was to go and take Radigan's soul and to bring it to heaven. And when they went looking for it, the soul had already gone. And it's because their soul was taken to heaven so quickly, they didn't even have time to fetch it, right? These are the kinds of stories that are being told about her. So th this, is a, this is a peaceful death and a holy death, and one that does illustrate the triumph of her life, ultimately, thinking what she went through, and then 
how she was able, what she was able to achieve and, and how she was able to die. It was, let's say, a, a good and fitting death for her. Um, but if, after she dies, we have yet one more tragedy left, uh, which is what happens to her monastic institution. And things go badly rather quickly after she dies. Uh, within, the, let's say, a two-year period, what happens is that the bishop, Maroveus, wants to reassert his control of the institution. Of course, he has one more um, act left in him, which is that he doesn't show up for her funeral, so the Bishop of Tours has to come and bury her. And then he manages to regain, uh, he, to gain royal permission to have control over the convent. Now, also what happens is that the abbess that Radigan had handpicked to run the institution, a woman named Agnes, coincidentally dies not too long after Radigund. And the new abbess, Lubuvera, is in a weak position, and she's quite happy to bring Maroveus on side, and together they will assert control of this institution. It causes a controversy, and there are some nuns from the institution who say, this isn't right, we have a royal background, we should really be the ones in charge, we don't accept this, and they leave. But they don't leave to just go somewhere else. They leave, really, in order to go speak to their relatives, who are reigning kings, and to get permission to basically make themselves the people who are in charge of the monastery, to take over the monastery. And when that isn't immediately forthcoming and it's taking too long to happen, they decide to gather a band of, uh, you could say, warriors. They're more like brigands around them and to try and take control of the monastery by force. And it's a horrible sequence of events where they're confronted by a bishop, they attack the bishop and his entourage, they ultimately uh, assault the monastery itself, implant themselves there, but in a way that's very destructive to the institution. The, the fighters that they've assembled in order to do this start sacking the place and taking things. And in the end, the whole revolt has to be suppressed Kings get involved. They appoint a a leader, a military leader, to go and restore order in the monastery. And it's a disaster for the institution. It really is. Eventually, things are sorted out. Peace is restored. The place is functioning again as a monastery, but it's not the same. It's never the same. Uh, it doesn't have the same unique character or radical potential that it had under Radigund. It now will be under Episcopal oversight. It will follow a rule very strictly. It will have a very normal kind of structure and function to it. And it secures the enduring legacy of the institution, but it loses that unique character that Radigund gave to it. So in a way, the end of her life is also kind of the end of the institution it's it's not the end of the institution fully but it's the end of the way that it had functioned while she was alive because no one could maintain that legacy that she had because no one was comparable to her and that's really what happens it's a failure of leadership and inability to imitate her own actions because no one else has the same prestige and acumen to pull it off yeah, it very much highlights just how unique and innovative she was, um, that it couldn't be sustained after her death. If we think longer term, though, because obviously this was all a very long time ago, um, there's been quite a lot of time between now and then um, to remember her or not, or to use her memory in various ways. So 
how was she remembered in the sort of shorter term, in the longer term? How was her legacy created? How was it used? Yes, so in the wake of this uprising in the monastery and its restoration, which was a scandal and and which was known far and wide and shocked people, there was a need to rehabilitate the legacy of Radagund and of the institution. So we see two hagiographies produced. And really, it, it is because of these events that we actually have the bulk of our knowledge about Radagund, which you could say is ironic, or you could say is some kind of silver lining. But the first effort is an effort to repair Radagund's legacy. That's by Fortunatus. And he presents her as a holy figure who may have founded a monastery, but didn't necessarily need to found one because she was going to be a holy figure no matter what in her life. He focuses on her. He doesn't say all that much about the institution. She's not holy because she founded Holy Cross. She was already holy on her own. So he's kind of separating her from the institution because he wants her reputation not to be tarnished by the scandal that had just happened. And I think he is writing right after. About a decade and a half later, you have a nun from the reconstituted Holy Cross who writes a biography of her that does highlight the institution and rehabilitates the legacy of the institution. It's been longer now, it's been enough time, and this is the work by Baldinivia, and she very much centers Holy Cross as the purpose of Radigan's life and as essential to her legacy. So we get two biographies that both rehabilitate her legacy. That's the immediate sort of impact of how she was remembered. And then longer term, throughout the medieval period, Radigand really functions as the model of the Holy Queen. Not so much as she had lived her life herself, but as she was remembered in these hagiographies. So again and again, queens who want to present themselves as being pious and holy will read the life of Radigund, either by Fortunatus or by Balanivia, and take inspiration. And you can see them imitating her and presenting themselves as her. Also, the uh, it, within Poitiers itself and within Gaul, Radigund's reputation, properly speaking, continues. There are illuminated manuscripts made of her. There's a stained glass uh, project at um, a church in Poitiers about her. So her legacy continues, and even very locally, there are local legends. There's one of a kind of dragon that lives in the river that Radigan vanquishes, right? So it's a very fertile landscape for legends or more official biographies or artistic programs. Her reputation continues throughout the Middle Ages. It really um, hits, hits a point of change when it comes to, of course, the revolution uh, in France, which destroys the monastery of holy cross and although there is an attempt to recreate it nearby and to keep going that is really the moment when radigan's project comes to an end but radigan herself lives on as a heroic figure and she is seen as a kind of french national hero during the third republic the 1300th anniversary of her death which is 1887 she's hailed as the mother of the french fatherland and even in World War One, there were pilgrimages made to Poitiers for her to save France. And the interesting thing is, because she was of a Thuringian background, Thuringia is in modern-day Germany, so in Catholic quarters of Germany, she's also seen as a holy figure. So she has this 
transnational character. And I think most recently, that's the part that's come out is she's been seen as a kind of pan-European saint. And when I started doing the research on Radagund and writing this book, that was really the most recent kind of vision and iteration of who she was that I had to, to work with. And of course, she lives on in your book, right? That's how we can actually read and access all of this, even for those of us who can't go back and read the original sources or anything like that. Um, so I think that very helpfully brings us right up to the present. Yes, yeah, so I certainly hope so. I mean, my number one objective with the book, I wanted to make sure that I did not simply repeat the two hagiographies of her with uh, a little bit of historical distance and a kind of sedate interpretation of the miracles and these kinds of things. But I wanted to try and get behind those sources and see if it was possible to do justice to Radigund herself and to work out with different degrees of probability who she may have been and try and restore that story. And I, I, I've definitely had that as an, as an objective is to try and restore Radigund who she was and, and do justice to herself, her herself, rather than just, this is what we have in the sources. And then we're kind of limited to that. Well, it definitely, um, I will say to listeners, um, it definitely reads more like a modern biography of an interesting person. And I promise you, this is not just a hagiography as if you had gone back thousands, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, so if you don't like reading hagiographies, don't worry. <laughs> That's not what this is. Um, but you've obviously finished it, right? It's out, it's available. People can go read it. What then, as my final question, might you be working on now or next, um, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on Radigand, anything you'd like to preview for us? Well, I think I'll always be be revisiting the ideas about Radigand and writing about her. I certainly hope so. Um, but the next project that I have actually kind of builds upon this idea of the, the experiences that she had and the, the mixture of uh, triumph and tragedy and the experience of captivity and also then later of, of royalty and holiness, um, but to apply it in a different context. So I'm looking at now domestic slavery um, and particularly the question of the sexual exploitation of domestic slaves in the late Roman world and in the early medieval period across the whole of the greater Mediterranean world. So it's it's there's a little fragment of Radigan's life experiences that have become the seed for a much larger project. And this is not just something that I'm doing myself, but thankfully I have a team of people that I'm very happy to be working with and that are participating in this project. And it will last until October, 2026. And it's called Dose Project, D-O-S-S-E Project, all one word.com. If you'd like to uh, see what, what we're producing now and what this research will be about, it's all explained on that website, but I'm very excited to be carrying this forward. And I think that there is a, there is a certain continuity with the project on Radigand, and I hope I keep talking about her and writing about her as I do this new project. Wonderful. Well, thank you for giving us the preview and something to go look up. But of course, listeners can also read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Radigand, The Trial and Triumphs of a Merovingian Queen, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and it's been a joy to talk to you.